Hello, everyone, and welcome. My name is Jana Panaritis, and you're listening to the AgeWise podcast, where we give you strategies for aging well and wisely. And how do you do that when on top of struggling to meet the demands of your own life, you're also caring for an aging parent or a spouse, or maybe you're caring for another member of your family? Well, we're here to help. Each week, we'll hear from the experts, professionals in the field of aging, and people like you, unsung heroes rising to the occasion of caring for a loved one and finding unexpected rewards along the way. So stick around for some straight talk on aging in all its unpredictable glory. Lisa Woodruff is a professional organizer, a blogger, and a podcast host. She's also a member of the Sandwich Generation, whose life changed dramatically when her parents divorced and her father later became ill. Lisa joins us today from Cincinnati, Ohio, where she lives with her husband and two kids. Lisa Woodruff, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. Tell us where you grew up and a little bit about your background. So I was born and raised in the Akron and Cleveland area. My whole entire extended family on both sides were in Cleveland, and we grew up in Akron, Ohio, which was about 45 minutes away, which was so great because at every single holiday, we could go visit my mom and my dad's family, and then every other year, my parents were both the oldest in their family, so they would host Thanksgiving at our house, and I would be able to have my Thanksgiving dinner with both my mom and dad's extended family. I had this huge, big, wonderful family that I grew up in, and I just loved every minute of that. And how many siblings do you have? I just have one sister. I'm the oldest. My dad is the oldest of six. Uh And my mom was the oldest of five. Her mother and her stepfather both got married while she was in college. And so she and her sister joined three boys. Uh, It was kind of like a Brady Bunch type thing only in college. (laughs) So there were lots and lots of cousins. (laughs) And so when did you move away from your hometown, let's say, and, and what spurred you to do that? Because I know on your website, you, you wrote that your family home was four hours away when you got that call. So can you tell yes. us yeah, when you moved away and what happened on that day that you got that call? Yes. So my parents moved to the home that I was raised in when I was six years old. I lived there my entire life and I went to Miami University, which is in Oxford near mm-hmm. Cincinnati, Ohio. And I went to Miami for four years, and I went three of those summers to summer school. And my whole goal in going to college was to get an MRS degree, and I did. (laughs) I became Mrs. Woodruff a year after uh, graduating from college. And so my husband lived in Cincinnati, and so that's why I was in Cincinnati. It's about three and a half, four hours from the Akron-Cleveland area, depending where you're traveling to. And I had been living in Cincinnati with my husband, and a couple years later, we had our two children, and the kids were probably like six and seven when I got the call to go home for the last week that my father would be alive. But we had been spending the whole year prior to that at the drop of a hat, you know, just jumping in the car and driving home whenever it seemed like things had taken a turn. When did he get sick, and and what happened? So it was probably the summer before he passed that he, like, passed out, I think, on a golf course. He's a big golfer. Mm -hmm. And I got the call that he had been in the hospital and that I needed to come home. And I did. And he was in the hospital probably for four to six weeks. The doctors were saying, you know, like, he's not going to make it. You know, this is it. Mm -hmm. But my dad's blood pressure and his heart was so strong 
it like defied all odds and he made it through that and he came out and then for the next year he would be healthy and then something would happen and then he wouldn't be healthy but he was so good at being in denial Mm -hmm. that he was like oh everything's fine everything's great like he's a very very positive energy Mm -hmm. but I spent that whole year knowing that whenever I got a call to go home I did drop anything and go home because I knew he wouldn't live a long long time And I knew that every time I could go home and see him or any time that our family could spend time with him would be one more memory that we would have for the rest of our lives. Mm -hmm. When he collapsed on the golf course, how old was he and what did they diagnose in the hospital? He was 59, I believe, so pretty young. Mm -hmm. But it was just, you know, I don't want to go into the details of it, but it was just something that genetically in our family that typically the people do tend to die in the 60s if they end up getting this condition. And so I knew that he was pretty much following the same path as his father uh, as far as the illness that he had and how it would progress. And I did not really imagine he would live. We didn't even think he would make it the whole year that he did. Uh huh. So when he was first hospitalized, it was not for a heart condition. It was from for some other. No, related. no. Okay. I'm saying that he lived that whole year because his heart was so strong. Right. That's that's what it sounds mm-hmm. like. I, and then you said he was kind of in denial about his health, which is not unusual for men. You know, right? I mean, especially of a certain generation. Mm-hmm. They just think they're going to live forever. Um, you know, <laughs> women are kind of, I don't, this sounds sexist, but I think we're more in tune with our bodies. Mm-hmm. Okay, so then you got this call and this sort of began the process of always always being on call, right? Until your father. Yeah, in the summer. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it was seven years ago, maybe in the summer. And my kids were relatively young. They had a lot of medical issues at the time. I was working full-time. My husband was working full-time. Plus, I had some kind of home-based business. So we had a lot going on down here in Cincinnati. Mm -hmm. And it was a lot to leave my husband with every time I had to go home. But my parents had gotten divorced. So my sister and I were in charge of everything. So when he was in the hospital, we became power of attorney and power of healthcare and, you know, power of everything. And so we had to go home and figure it all out and take care of not only him, but the house and all the other things that were going on in his business at that time. And your mom was just not involved in that at all? Correct. Okay. That must have been hard for you to take all that on, just the two of you, you you and your sister? Yeah. I think, you know, they had just gotten divorced um, maybe six months prior. So it wasn't where it had been, oh, they were divorced in the past. And so we could all come together and make happy family. You know, it was like everybody was still reeling and going through that whole process. And so we were in the middle of the chaos of that and then the chaos of this and then the chaos of my own family. And it was just really surviving one thing to the next. So you were four hours away, but your sister was closer. And Yeah, uh, she was only like 30 minutes away. I mean, she was in Akron, yeah. Oh, that okay. So that probably helped you mm-hmm. a lot, but it's still a lot to deal with. Yeah, and, and my dad was the oldest, so uh-huh. his three sisters were, you know, only 20 minutes away as well. So they were always there well before I was. Uh-huh. One was a nurse, and, you know, like... Each of the sisters had their own special gifts that they brought to the situation, and they were able to help out in so many ways. But the legal responsibilities fell on my sister and I. So luckily, my father had been really proactive. My parents both had, and they had gone to a lawyer, and they had everything set up. So when we got there the first time and found the power of attorney papers and went to see the lawyer, he said, oh, my gosh, your dad could not have set you up any better than he did. Like, you have power to do absolutely anything and everything that you need. We had access to all the bank accounts. We were able to change the the, um, titles of the car and the house and all of those things and set them up 
for better taxes for his eventual passing. Sure. We had power to do all of those things because he had already authorized all of that, which that helped right away to know that we were able to make all of those decisions and had access to, you know, using his money to provide for him. Mm-hmm. It was very, very helpful. Were you surprised to discover that he had already set that no, up? No, not at all. Well, because he owned his own business also. And uh-huh. so, you know, when you own your own business, and he had 70 employees, so he had to have that set up legally correctly. So at the same time, they set up their own. I, I believe it was the same time. I, I kind of remember in high school them doing this and going through the process with a lawyer and getting everything set up correctly, which now that I've done it for uh, our family and mm-hmm. our kids who mm-hmm. are still teenagers, it's an expense to do that. Sure. But if you okay. don't do it, then the people who have to care for you don't aren't able to use your resources and they don't have the power to do anything on your behalf. Mm-hmm. That's really fortunate that your dad had that foresight. So what sort of Mm -hmm. uh, responsibilities did you not anticipate, like, that you were surprised that you had to deal with? Well, when my father got sick that first summer, and then he made it through that, and we knew we had a period of time, we didn't know how long of a period of time. I'm a big researcher, analyzer type person. And Mm -hmm. I went online and I bought the book called The Complete Executor's Guidebook. Mm -hmm. And that really, really helped me because I was then able to think about, okay, you know, what do we have to do when he is in the hospital and we have to take care of him? And then there was a period where I was doing the bills and stuff and he was at home and I was like, um, dad, like, there's no reason I need to be power of attorney anymore. Like, you can write your own check. So I relinquished power of attorney back over to him. And that was really weird to, like, realize that I had kept the reins and that he hadn't asked him back. So I gave him back to him. And then he got sick again. But it, it also, you know, the thing that really was hardest for me, was the realization that relatively quickly, my sister and I were going to have to plan a funeral. And that had not been planned out. And that wasn't something we were talking to Dad about. Mm-hmm. And so we were going to have to do that. And then the other thing that really, about six months before he died, I, I came to grips with and realized was we were going to have to clean out this family home. Mm-hmm. We were going to have to sell it. Mm-hmm. And either my sister and I could hang on for this home for a long period of time. Like I have a lot of friends who have waited a whole year to sell those houses. We didn't have the financial means to keep that house going. It needed to be sold relatively quickly. And so I knew that once my father did pass, we were going to have to plan a funeral. We're going to have to clear out the family home that we had lived in for, you know, over 30 years. Mm -hmm. And then we were going to have to put that house on the market. I knew that was going to be really, really hard to do physically, just just physically. I knew the amount of Mm -hmm. work involved, but the emotional on top of it, and then all the different extended family dynamics. I am more logical. My sister is more feeling and emotional, and I knew it was going to be even harder on her. And then in order to do that, it was going to take time, and I was going to have to leave my kids with my husband for an extended period of time because I couldn't possibly bring them with me and do it at the same time. But a lot of people, to figure out how were they going to process the situation and how were we going to get this task accomplished, you know, within two months, which is what we had to do. Mm -hmm. And your sister was working full-time as a nurse, did you say? At that time? No, my my aunt was a nurse, but my sister, yes, was working full-time as well. Okay, Mm -hmm. okay. So she was working full-time, and she was nearby, but she was working full-time. And you were four hours away, and you were working full-time as well? I was. I was a teacher, and my father actually passed away the week after Mother's Day. So it was towards the end of the school year, and I was in a team teaching Uh situation. So I came back to finish the school year, but I knew I did have the month of July to be able to do what I needed to do in the family home. Mm -hmm. And how big was the house? You know, uh, about three 
3,000 square feet, okay. and there were three cars, you know, uh-huh. some bigger things that you had to figure out how to, how to get rid of, things like that. So you basically planted yourself there for the month of July? No, I, I had to get it done in five days. So I had figured out as much as I could in Cincinnati before I came home. I had a legal pad, and my sister, when we were planning the funeral and everything, one day she came over, and I was like, okay. And I got out the legal pad. She's like, I'm out of here. And she just walked out because I would keep grabbing this legal pad. But I had figured out by day how much to the house we had to get through in order to be done in five days, which was the only amount of time I had. And so each morning I would get up at 6 a.m., I would go to whatever part of the house that we needed to work on. I would take everything out of the cabinets, everything out of the drawers, so that when my sister came there, we were able to just be sisters and go through and be like, okay, what do you want? What do I want? You know, there was no one other than us. We could have whatever we wanted. There was no arguing or anything. Mm -hmm. And so we decided what we wanted, and then, you know, we allowed the family to come through after for what they wanted. And, you know, you try to sell stuff, but you just don't get anything for what you sell it for. And then she would leave after being there anywhere from three to six hours, whatever it took that day. And then I would spend the rest of the day packing up the stuff for her, packing up the stuff for me, cleaning out that part of the house, and then getting the next section ready for her the next day. So I'd go to bed about midnight and get up at 6 a.m. each day in order to get that done in the five days that I had. And you were sleeping at the house? Yes. Mm -hmm. How hard was that for you to be there alone? I, I actually liked it. Okay. You know, my father passed away at home, too, and, uh-huh. and growing up, uh, we went to a small Catholic school, and in eighth grade, I had three grandfathers die in one month. Three oh grandfathers God. died in one month, and you had to do a how-to speech, and so I can't remember what my how-to speech was, but in my class of 50, there were two boys, and those two boys were the sons of the two funeral directors in town, and one did, like, how to bury a body or something crazy, oh and I, God. like, went out of the room crying. Uh-huh. And the teachers thought I was lying that three different grandfathers had died. Like, they thought that my parents were, like, making it up, taking me on a vacation or something. And I wasn't. But so that was comforting. When my father did pass away, I mean, there are two funeral homes, and I know the kids running them now. Like, uh-huh. they were, like, really good friends. I'm like, hey, Bunker, I need some help. So my father had passed away at home. And, you know, this was a family home we grew up in. Like, I don't remember any other home other than this home. So again, just like whenever my father needed me and I dropped everything and I drove home, I really enjoyed the five days of being home and going through every nook and cranny of that house one more time. Mm-hmm. It's therapeutic. Yeah. Five days is not a yeah. lot of time, though. Did you hit any snags along the way? Um, once or twice, my sister and I would both want the same item. And we did what my father had done. When his father died, I was, you know, it was that eighth grade year. I was 13. I was the oldest of all the grandchildren. And so I really remember that that month and him doing that with his siblings. And what they decided to do was there were six items and six children that they all really wanted. And so they each took one item. And then at Christmas, when they came back together, they would rotate the items from the oh. oldest all the way down. And then the youngest would pass theirs up to the oldest. And so my sister and I had two items that we both really, really wanted. And what we did was the same thing. She took one, I took the other, and then at the holidays we exchanged. Mm-hmm. So your dad died in the home, that which is really nice, I think. I mean, dying isn't nice, but it's nice that your dad was able to pass in his home and that you kind of still felt connected to it probably when you went back. So how long did it take before you actually sold the place after he died? You know, I want to mention something that you you said it sounds really weird, and I agree to you. It does sound really weird that um, it can be nice when somebody passes, but 
I would not trade that three or four days I had with my father before he passed for anything. I had no idea that death was such a beautiful thing. We got this little booklet from hospice that said, you know, there were like, I don't know, 50 things that you would notice would change mm-hmm. with your loved one as they passed. And my sister and I, like every couple hours, would look at the book and check off a few more things. And it was very helpful for us that we had a checklist that we were kind of going by. And the transition from him being awake and talking to us to passing, there were definite times where we could tell that he was like between here and heaven. Like it was the neatest thing. Like you could tell that he was kind of muttering in his eyes. It looks like they were rolling back in his head. But from what I could tell, I think he was he was looking at the angels. That's what he was looking at. And then he would all of a sudden look over and he would see Emily and I and he would startle like, what are you doing here? And then he would look back up and I was like, oh, He's trying to figure out why he could see both at the same time because he wasn't communicating yet anymore, uh-huh. but he wasn't in a coma yet. Uh-huh. And so it was really, really beautiful to see for us. It was very comforting for me, actually. Wow. What a great positive yeah. experience that yeah. you and would. Yeah. So now I have friends that are going through that. I'm like, oh, go spend the time. You'll be amazed. And the more people I talk to who have been in the same experience, feel the same way. You cannot explain it to people mm-hmm. ahead of time. Like it's, You sound crazy, but it really is very, very beautiful. Mm-hmm. And you knew he was going to die. I mean, he'd been ill on and off right. for a while. So I think that does make it e- easier, if that's the right word. I don't know. <laughs> easier. Yeah, I know. There aren't good <laughs> words for this interview, are there? Right. No, no. That's why I just say, you know, there's no formal format here. It's just a conversation yeah. that we're all sort of struggling in a good way, I think, many of us, to mm-hmm. make hard decisions and face really tough moments in our lives with some sort of dignity and grace and courage. So your dad passed away. We had the funeral, waited a month, went back. I did my part for a week. A couple more weeks went by, and the house was on the market two months after my father passed. I believe that was the timing. Mm -hmm. And within a week, we got an offer on the house, but it was lower than we wanted. And my sister and I discussed it, and we rejected the offer. And I remember when my parents were selling their house in Columbus, I lived in Columbus for just a few years before they bought the house in, in Akron, that they had had an offer on their house in Columbus, but it wasn't what they wanted, and they did not take the offer. And I cannot remember how long it was before they sold that house, but I want to say it was like six months or longer. And so they're now living in Akron, which is about two hours from Columbus, and my dad would have to, on the weekends, drive down to Columbus and cut that grass or pay somebody to cut that grass because they hadn't sold that house. And this was, you know, in the 70s. Mm -hmm. But I remember my dad saying numerous times throughout my life, we'd get an offer ticket. And so we had said no to that offer, and it was the next day, and I, you know, that was playing through my mind, and, and I called my sister, and I said, look, if we hold out for the money that we want, and we have to wait two months, we're already going to get less than this offer, because we have to pay property taxes, and housekeeping, and insurance, and all these things on this house, even though the house is paid off, there's still a lot of fees that you have to pay on a house, mm-hmm. you know, on a property. Mm-hmm. And I said, I think if they're still willing, we should take it. And so we called the realtor back and we said to tell him, we'll take it. And we took it and they took it and it was sold. That's good. Mm-hmm. And you put it behind you too, you know, emotionally. You just kind of made a clean yeah. break. And that's the other thing that we don't necessarily think about. We think about the numbers and, you know, the logistics behind the sale of a house. But there's the emotional side too. So if you would had to hold on to it for longer, not knowing, that would have been kind of tough, right? Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah. So it's good that you you were able to take the time off because of the kind of work you were doing, but um, that could have been a lot harder for you. Do you have friends who are doing this now and who are having difficulty because they can't get away? I think it's not necessarily that they can't get the time off of work. In my experience, the issue has more been coordinating with the other siblings to get there, or more often now, they don't have anybody other than themselves. Mm-hmm. And so everything in this house is now theirs. Mm-hmm. And they're not ready to go through and make the decision of how much of this they want to keep or not. And so they delay selling the house. They're going through the house because they're going piece by piece, one thing at a time, through everything to decide what they want to keep. And every single thing they get rid of, even if it's like a mug, well, it was mom's mug. Like it's not, it's no longer, nothing in that house is just trash. It's every single thing is something that your loved one has touched. And so now you don't want to get rid of anything. And once you're done with this process, the house is gone and it's kind of a finality. It's really, really hard for people. So I think it's more that they need somebody to come in and help them go through the stuff and help them make the tough decisions. Listen to them as they tell the story and encourage them is more what I see than actually needing more time off of work. Hmm. Well, tell us about your business and how you got started with it and what it's all about. So I'm a professional organizer here in Cincinnati, but I also have a podcast and blog on Organize 365 where I help people really start to make decisions on what things they need to keep in their home. So on the blog and on the podcast, I take homeowners through a 40-week, you know, go through their house in 40 weeks and start to make the decisions. You know, if you have not cleaned out your own house, which I had, I, I was a professional organizer on the side when my parent, when my father passed, and I cleaned out my own house, and we'd actually cleaned out my father's house a lot before he passed. Mm-hmm. But all of a sudden, when you own all that stuff, like my sister and I owned it all, then we had to say, no, we don't want it, or here, you can have it, or we're going to sell it. It's so much harder when you look at it that way. And so as a professional organizer, I go in and, and I sit with people and I say, okay, there are 89 shirts here. How often do you wear T-shirts? Do you wear three? Like, could we get this down to 20 maybe? Like, <laughs> which ones don't you want? But also for your audience, when they're going through things, um, and I work with people with escapes, it's not so many, you know, there are 100 golf shirts here. What golf shirts do you want? It's, well, let's find the 10 courses your dad likes playing the most, and let's turn that into a table runner, which is what we did with my dad's golf shirt. Hmm. Or there was an attorney and a politician that I worked with, and we put all of his memorabilia into photo albums and scanned it for his grandchildren because he had been in politics for 40 years. Hmm. Or you could take ties and you could turn them into, you could send your favorite ties off and it can be turned into a pillow or into a teddy bear. Or you could take your mom's china and just take one complete place setting and keep it at your house to remember that place setting versus taking the whole entire set of china. So knowing that you could keep the memory and you could keep a piece of it and you could keep your family member versus keeping the quantity is what I really help people through. And then listening. I mean, Mm -hmm. having somebody who has the expertise to give you that information, but also just just sit there and listen to you talk about when mom got that china and when she was so excited about it or when your father won the club championship and it was that country club. Mm -hmm. So when people come to you, do you find that they've already gone through some of the tough emotional detachment that is necessary? Or do you find yourself really having to do that as well when you sit down with them? Because people are reluctant to get rid of their stuff. Yeah, I think it's a five-year process. Having done this over and over again, divorce, death, loss of a job, 
it takes five years and you are in a five-year grieving process is just what I've observed. Mm-hmm. And like in the beginning, sometimes they'll get rid of a lot in the beginning because they're, they're in shock. Mm-hmm. And so sometimes they're like, it all goes. And I'm like, wait a minute. It doesn't all go. Like yeah. we need to, we need to keep some of it. So sometimes I'm actually counseling them to keep some of it. Uh huh. And at what point do they come to you? At what point do people generally come? Or does it vary? It does vary. It does vary. But I would say usually between three and five years, because at first they do nothing. Like the best thing to do is nothing, like Mm -hmm. make no decision whatsoever. And then they look around and either they have to sell the house or they can no longer walk in their house or somebody said, you know, you've got to settle the estate so I can have my portion or whatever. Right. That's when they call us. I wanted to go back just for a moment and ask you how you think your experience of letting go of your dad and all that changed your relationship with other family members, if it did? Hmm. You know, I think it brought all of us closer because my father had been the patriarch of the family. So when he said, we're going to do this, everybody did it. Or he he would organize a lot of things. And so that was going to be gone. And there could have been... Uh, uh, jockeying for position in the family, you know, like I'm now going to be the leader, you're going to listen to me. That did not happen. What happened was everyone stepped into the one thing they were great at. Uh Like, So my aunt, who was a nurse, would tell us what was happening medically, and as I was asking questions, she would tell me what the numbers meant. And my aunt that was great with finances and caretaking, she would tell me, um, you know, because she had taken care of her father, for the same exact thing, she would say, okay, here's what to expect next. Here's what you might want to be preparing for, you know, and she would mediate between my sister and I. Mm -hmm. And I had another aunt who just was a calming presence and she was just always there. And and she would spend the night at the house with me, with my dad and just, you know, quietly be there and provide that peace and presence. And, and everybody, I mean, I could go through everyone in our family that had that kind of a thing. And I think the other thing was my sister and I are very different. We live very far away from each other. And we were able to pull on each other's strength as opposed to try to get control of the whole situation or try to, you know, change the other person. So I'm analytical and organized and I have a checklist and my sister let me do that. And my sister is very feeling and empathetic, and she has a lot of relationships in the community. So when it came to planning the funeral, she knew way more than I did, and I let her do that. Mm-hmm. And and it was so great that, you know, when we went to make decisions, like little things that would happen. Like, for example, my father's initials are OAK. And he was cremated, but you have to put the person in something to be cremated. Mm-hmm. And one of the caskets was oak. And we just looked at each other and said, that's it. That's what we want. <laughs> because, it, you know, you know, little things like that yeah. would happen all the time mm-hmm. where it was we didn't even have to talk about it. Something that would happen, we would look at each other and say, okay, that's the decision we're supposed to make. We don't even have to think about, which is great. And the other thing that's great is my dad had a lot of um, great advisors. You know, he had a lawyer. He had an accountant. He had all these people. And when we called them, they were like, oh, what can we do to help? And we'll explain. And um, and that was really, really nice. You know, when you've lived in some place for so long and you know so many people, you didn't have to go through the whole, like, okay, I'm Lisa Kelly Woodruff and I'm Owen Kelly Zara. Like, people are like, what do you mean? Like, I, I could skip all of that because of his relationships. And that made it so much easier. Mm-hmm. That's fantastic. Isn't it nice when people rally around you when you really need them most? I think that's... Yeah, yeah. That's pretty amazing. You know, I go to funerals and I go to wakes for people. But when you're on the other side, 
it was neat to see um, some of my high school friends who I hadn't seen in 20 years mm-hmm. come to the wake. That was really neat because I always thought you were going for whoever had passed. And now I realize, no, you're going for the people that are left. Like, I don't know why I did not make that connection until it was me standing there and all these people were walking by. Like, they were paying respect to my dad, but they really were there for my sister and I mm-hmm. and my, you know, his, his sisters as well. Mm-hmm. I think that's a really good point. I certainly had the same experience at my father's wake, and I was so blown away because I saw people I hadn't seen in years. And yeah. it was almost overwhelming. It was too much. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you're right, already right. in a fog because you've lost your parent. It sounds like your dad had a real big um, impact on the community, too. And what sort of business was he in? Uh, he owned a tool and dye company, but he was, you know, he was involved in a lot of um volunteer and church and golf and he was just one of those larger than life people that was always smiling and telling a joke and so you just like to hang around him mm-hmm. <laughs> and so he just had lots and lots of friends mm-hmm. yeah you bet you miss him yeah. so what sort of offerings do you have on your website tell us a little i know you had set up a special page for listeners of the AgeWise podcast with a free giveaway tell us what sort of offerings you have on the website so i think um you know Part of being a caregiver and being responsible for another person means you're also responsible for their home very often. And so that brings to light. Like I remember when my father was going through this, my home got totally unorganized. My family totally fell apart from an organizational aspect. And the thing that I really noticed was the whole world doesn't stop when you're going through crisis. Like I still had to take care of my family. We still had to have food in the house. You know, somebody had to wash the underwear. And that was me. And so if during that time you can think about what things uh, would make it easier for you, now is the time when people say, hey, can I bring in it, anything over? Say, yes, bring a meal. Or drop your clothing off at the dry cleaner. Usually they also have laundry service. And let them do your laundry for two weeks so that the kids have clothes to wear so that you can function, things like that. Mm-hmm. But. If you go through the 40 Weeks One Whole House Challenge, sometimes if you're going to keep your family home for a year, it's helpful to break it down and chunk it that way and just do the kitchen one day and do the pantry the next day and do the the bedroom the next day. And I encourage you, too, as you're going through your family home, um, take pictures. Take pictures before you start deciding what you're going to do with everything Mm -hmm. because you will be so grateful for those pictures later. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, Lisa, is there anything else you'd like to share before we take off? Well, I just think the only thing that I would leave you with is this is a time in life that you will never get back. It is super, super hard, but you will create memories during this time of caregiving that you will treasure for years and decades to come. So really treasure that time and enjoy the time. And if if the person you're caring for is still verbal, write down what they say, ask them about their childhood, ask them about their memories, pull out those old photos. You don't have to put them in boxes yet, but just, you know, with a notepad or a piece of paper or a tape recorder running, go through those photos and find out who are those people in those books because that's the stuff that you're never going to get back. And you can find me at organize365.com. And if you want to go to that special page, it's organize365.com forward slash age-wise. Well, Lisa Woodruff, thanks so much for coming on the show. I really enjoyed talking with you. Thank you. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye. 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 
That's our show for today. Thanks for listening. I'd love to know what you thought about today's show. You can email me at Jana at AgeWise.com. That's J-A-N-A at A-G-E-W-Y-Z or Z, as my Canadian mother says. You can also find me online at AgeWise.com, and you can subscribe to the podcast and download any episodes for free on iTunes. You can also listen to the podcast on Stitcher. I'm Jana Panaritis. See you next time. Until then, age well. Age wise.